0: we can read some verses from Luke chapter 23 and verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ, save yourself and us? But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. just like us to um, think about uh, this dialogue between the three crucified um, persons there at Calvary. I'd like us to think about it from the point of view of uh, going to a garden. As we know, human life started in a garden. There, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If we turn to the end of the Bible, it ends in a garden. first garden was a temple. It was built on top of a mountain. We know that because the rivers flowed down from it. It was a place for serving God. The rest of the world was uncultivated. Adam and Eve, they were given the task of cultivating the rest of the world. But God himself planted the garden. And God himself put the trees in the garden. And God made the garden Our fellowship. And we don't know how often he did it. Maybe only once. But he came down in the afternoon to have fellowship with them in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, we know what happened to them. They sinned. And the consequences of their sins were many. But when there was, they were banned from the garden. And yet, the story of the Bible if we want to summarize it in one way, is how do you get back to the garden? Or, as Luke indicates, how do we get to paradise? How will it be regained? Where would we expect to be informed that the garden still exists. Now would look, wouldn't it, as we start, if we had just appeared in Jerusalem on the Passover, or whatever year this was, if we had just appeared there and discovered That there were three executions taking place, that we would assume that the three individuals whose lives were coming to an end, that the one place they were not going to go to was the garden. we would have regarded them if we knew about the two rebels. We would have said, well, they're definitely not going to the garden. And if we had heard anything about the one on the center cross, well, we might say about him He had good intentions, but he's failed. There he is, hanging on the cross. How can that man get us to the garden? So I'd just like to look at this passage and just see what it tells us. We could say that, as we start the account, that two of the men, the last thing they wanted was to go to the garden. If they wanted anything at all, it was to go back to the life they had before. and the in the center cross, well, he's gonna say a lot of things, but everything he says on the cross, it's designed to get to the garden. I like to think about the desperate question that's asked in verse 39 by one of the criminals and then the amazing confession that's made by the other criminal in verses 40 and 41 and then his simple request in verse 42 and then the wonderful promise that he's given in verse 43. So there's this desperate question by one of the criminals. And he says to Jesus. And at one level his statement is true. Isn't it? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. As you if we had been standing there, we would have thought, well, that's a very logical question. The man was a Jew, a condemned criminal. He had been involved in a, an attempt by Jewish revolutionaries to try and get rid of the Roman authorities. But being a Jew, he'd have known what the Messiah was going to do. When he came, perhaps he wasn't too sure that he existed, but anyway, he would have concurred with the idea that should he appear, he'll be the savior. And perhaps he had heard of all the incredible things that this man on the center cross had done incredible acts of power healing people of all kinds of diseases solving all kinds of dilemmas even raising people from the dead controlling the elements a man who could calm a, a man who could calm a storm in a sea I mean, what power would there be in a couple of nails to keep him on the cross it would be quite reasonable if you thought he was the Messiah it would be, and a Messiah who's approachable to ask him to just show his power and somehow just remove the nails from himself and from the other two who are there. So his question, while it might be desperate, And well, to us, it's blasphemous. To the man himself, it was quite logical. This is what the Christ is for. He's here when he comes to save us. and therefore, this man asked Jesus to save him. Of course, we know that his logical question didn't really understand who he was or who Jesus was. He didn't understand what salvation meant. His question, well, it had a false glimmer of hope in it, it was actually a false hope. If he was expecting Jesus to d- do this, <clears throat> he hadn't realized that that was not why Jesus came. And that the salvation that Jesus would provide would not be provided by just exercising some power. The man didn't realize that at all. He was spiritually blind. He was hanging there beside the light of the world, and he could see nothing. He was a man in spiritual darkness, heading towards, sadly, a lost eternity. And he's there beside the person, the only person, that can prevent anyone from going there. But we do have to admit, don't we, that his question was logical. According to his understanding of reality, (coughs) if Jesus is the Christ, save yourself and us. But it was a question of a man who didn't understand what was going on. But then, rather suddenly, and very surprisingly, we can see from the amazing confession that his his former colleague makes, that this man does see what's going on. And does understand there. And he actually, right away, as we can see from verse 40, he understands that the logical question of his former friend has missed the point altogether. And we may wonder how did this happen? And we can look at the verses, and we can look at all the things that happened at Calvary, and we can say to ourselves, well, maybe he was impressed by the prayer that he heard when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Maybe he, can, we can suggest that he just looked at Jesus and somehow saw that this man was different. Because he does say, doesn't he? This man has done nothing wrong. I mean, how would he work that one out? What was there at Calvary to tell this man that Jesus had done nothing wrong? What evidence can be listed to indicate that Jesus was sinless? It looks to me as if coming up with all these kinds of suggestions is a totally pointless exercise. I mean, the. Uh, other thief heard the prayer of Jesus and it didn't affect him. The other criminal didn't decide that Jesus was sinless and he was just as close to him as the man now who makes the amazing confession. How did he discover it? Well, we know the answer to that question. And it's the the answer to every conversion. The reason why this second criminal made this amazing confession is because he's enlightened by the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation. And of course, it is the only explanation for any conversion. Why do we see and others don't? We might be more intelligent than others, and we might not be. But the fact that we see It's got nothing to do with our intelligence. We might have had a background that was more privileged than the background of others. And we may have been told about Jesus since we were infants. And that's a wonderful heritage to have. But that's not why we see. There's only one reason why we see, why we understand who Jesus is, why we think the cross is the way to the garden. And that's because we've been enlightened. The Holy Spirit has come to us and opened our darkened understanding. And once he opens our darkened understanding, We will never ask such a pointless question as the first criminal asked. Instead, we will come up with other comments. Comments similar to how this man did. What is there in his confession that tells us he was enlightened? Enlightened. well there's at least three things and as we look at what he says do you not fear God? And especially do you not fear him since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? This man a few minutes before this, according to other Gospel writers, has been joining in the sarcastic taunts flung at Jesus. Here he now is suddenly aware that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, that's where he's going. He hasn't got any dreams about the nails being taken out of his hands, his former partner in crime. He had that dream, but that dream had gone from this second man's outlook. He knew that within a few hours. He'd fall into the hands of the living God. Some people might regard that as being rather discouraging. And of course, if that's all he had, then it certainly would be discouraging. But I suspect He wouldn't have gone on to say the other things he said if he hadn't realized this. But it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The second thing that indicates the fact that he was enlightened is that he's willing to take personal responsibility for his sins says that, doesn't he? We indeed justly. We are here suffering for the due reward of our deeds. And we deserve it. Every, it's almost as if he's saying, every wrong action that I've done, every wrong thought that I've engaged in, Nobody else is to blame. I can't blame my environment. I can't blame my personality. I can't blame anything. I am responsible for all the sin I have committed. The sins I'm aware of and the sins I'm not aware of. Nobody else is to blame for any of them. However much they may have cajoled me to join in, whatever the thing was that we were doing, he says to his friend, I'm responsible, he says, for what I did. And you're responsible for what you did. That's what he says, isn't it? And the willingness to confess guilt is a sign of enlightenment. And there's a third feature in his confession that indicates he's been enlightened. And that's the one we kind of mentioned earlier where he says that Jesus has done nothing wrong. How does he know that? He can't read Jesus' mind. He can't read the heart of Jesus. But somebody who can read Jesus' mind And somebody who does know the heart of Jesus has spoken in the mind of this particular man and showed him who Jesus is. And there, on the cross, he saw beyond the outward circumstances. And he saw straight into who Jesus was. This man has done nothing wrong. What an incredible insight. And I don't think it's too much to suggest that the reason why he could see who he was himself is because he could see who Jesus is. How did this man know he was a sinner? He didn't think he was a sinner because Pilate had condemned him. I suspect he didn't even think he was a sinner because he knew God's law condemned him. Although he is aware of that. But I think he thinks he's a sinner because he's beside the only sinless person there's ever been. And as he finds himself in the presence of the Holy, he's almost like Peter, isn't he? Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Why are you a sinful man, Peter? Because I've seen what Jesus can do. I've seen him, and we may think this is odd, but he's a better fisherman than me. I can fish all night and catch nothing. He just tells me from the shore to put my net over there and I'll get a catch of fish. What kind of man is this? And also says Peter, What kind of man am I? And that's why he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Here's this criminal and we could almost say he's got almost perfect eyesight. He sees what's truly important. He sees Himself. He sees who Jesus is. And he understands that although he and Jesus are polar opposites, that he can speak to Jesus and ask Jesus to do something for him. That's totally incredible. And that's what enlightenment does. It makes us treat Jesus the way he should be treated. And to ask of him the things that should be asked. The first man's logical question. Might have made common might have been according to common sense. But the second man's question was spiritual sense. And therefore he makes a simple request in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As we look at that statement, I suppose lots of things have come to us, but it's simple, isn't it? It might even be the most simple prayer in the Bible. Simple, it's humble, it's personal, it's expectant. simple. What makes it so simple? Well, hang, think it's just because he knew he could ask for the impossible. Imagine him asking this question to Pilate. Pilate couldn't give it to him. Remember me when you come into your kingdom? He had grasped that he, a sinner about to fall into the hands of the living God, could speak to Jesus about the eternal kingdom. What amazing insight. You know there's something to be said for simple prayers. Mm-hmm. Prayers to just get straight to the point. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's also humble. It's almost as if he's saying to Jesus, isn't it? Remember little me. Remember Unworthy me. Remember sinful me. Remember me, who, if you don't help me, I'll fall into the hands of the living God. Just He no longer thinks he's somebody. All he thinks he is now is a little me. And it's personal, of course, isn't it? There's lots of things that other people can join us in praying for. but there's one prayer we have to do ourselves. And one that nobody else can do for us. And that's the prayer that brings us in contact with Christ. I don't know how many Christians are in the world, but even if all of them prayed for one person to be converted, And that person refuses to pray for himself. All their prayers won't bring anything. Unless, of course, the Lord decides to answer it. But we, everybody, is responsible to pray this prayer themselves. And this man just did it. Lord, remember me. It's not like the petition, we might say, of the first criminal, which was one of desperation. The second criminal's prayer is not of desperation. It's Expectation. He thinks that he can have a place in the Savior's kingdom. Despite the fact he's got a, a list as long as his arm of sin. He's quite sure of it. How does he know that Jesus has a kingdom? From a human point of view, if anyone looked less like a king, it was Jesus at that moment. But this man's enlightened. He understands who Jesus is. He thinks Jesus, if we want to put it this way, It's just outside the palace door, about to go in to sit on the throne. He sees that. He knows that's where Jesus is going. Spiritual enlightenment is an amazing reality. This simple request, he was heard. Jesus said nothing to the first criminal's request, but to the second criminal's request, he answered him straight away. A wonderful promise. Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, the the man himself, the criminal, he had got the order slightly wrong, hadn't he? I mean, when was Jesus going to become king? When was his crowning day? It wasn't going to happen when he died. Man didn't know that. But it looks as if Jesus is saying to him, until I become king, you will be in paradise. And The day itself, I'll be in paradise with you for a short time. Think of this man's experiences. In a short time, he's gonna die. And within a second, He's gonna be in heaven. In heaven, he's gonna be met by Jesus. And he's gonna be with Jesus in heaven, we want to put it this way, from Friday evening till Sunday morning. And then he's gonna see Jesus soul, and body be reunited. He's going to, whatever they said in heaven at that moment, the great resurrection has come. He's going to see that. Forty days after that, this man's soul is going to be there with all the spirits of the just men made perfect. And they're going to see the risen Savior ascend into glory. And they're going to hear the voice of the Father saying to him, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And whatever that enthronement means, this man's soul is going to watch it. And he's going to see Jesus be highly exalted, glorified. He himself is going to be glorified. And as far as his soul is concerned, his body is going to be thrown somewhere outside the city. But what wonderful experiences this is going to see in paradise. He's in the garden. He's got there. Looks around him. The word paradise. It doesn't mean the kind of garden we have outside our houses. It's kind of a country state that's in mind. marked by beauty and peace and order and perfection, as far as the eye can see. And he's there in the world of perfection. He went from being a sinner at the cross to be totally sanctified. And that's where he is now. But you know, the day coming when these three, one on the right hand, one on the left, and Jesus in the center, and it will be repeated. The great day of judgment, And what's this man going to hear Jesus say to him on that day? He's going to hear him Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And do you think it's beyond connection? For that man to think on that future great day that's what i prayed for remember me when you come in your kingdom and he's going to hear jesus say to him not just to him only but to everyone that believes in him come into the kingdom An endless kingdom, an expansive, expansive kingdom, and wonder of wonders, we might say. Everybody in it's a king. This man, like everybody else, is going to be there, he's going to be royal. Royalty. What a transformation. It's incredible what grace brings about. I'm sure we've all stopped with this, but I'm sure we've all heard the story of when Spurgeon was preaching on this. And he's... Picturing the man arriving in paradise and the angels looking on, because Jesus has returned first, of course, and Spurgeon imagines the angels talking to each other and saying, I wonder who's going to be the first to follow him in. And in comes this criminal, and in the way it's been told, the angels ask, who's this? And Spurgeon goes, a sample of the rest. And... We only get there because in one way or another, we have prayed the same kind of prayers he prayed. Lord, remember little me when we come into your big kingdom and the answer will be given to us. And it's the only answer it's ever given from the word today but the answer that is given to everyone that comes to know the king is that you'll be with me in the garden. Shall we pray? Lord we give you thanks for your incredible grace who can explain it, we talk about great sinners being converted. The reality is there's only one kind of sinner that's converted. Some may have more sins than others, but one sin put us out of the garden. Lord, we give you thanks that you had your plan. And we give you thanks that you enlightened sinners. And we pray you'd enlighten millions. Lord, bless the gospel. And may all of us be joining with this man, and saying about Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. Lord bless us at this communion, we pray that our affections for Christ would be very strong. Lord just bless us for your own name's sake, Amen. We can sing from Psalm 45.